Whenever I think about it, that's just whenever I think, isn't Jesus good? I always think of Polly. Isn't Jesus amazing? I just love that guy. People call him the mayor of Fremont because literally everyone knows him. Yeah, because he just like walks around and talks to people and like, you know. Sometimes he'll like stop traffic and let people come across. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's, uh, and uh, at the last summer, there's a parade in downtown Fremont for the music fest every year. And last summer, Paul got to be the leader of the parade. Oh, yeah. He had the big stick, you know, and the whole thing. They asked him to. I love that guy. Anyway. <laughs> He's just great. He also attends pretty much every church in Fremont, like at some. What? Like, <laughs> he really does. Like he'll tell me, you know, hey Pastor Josh, I'm going to be at my other church next week, and so he'll go. And sometimes he'll go to that other church and then come back to our church for the after-service cookies. Um, <laughs> you guys always get after-service cookies every Sunday. Oh yes. Is it just some like our be kind to one another be kind to one another in the parking lot is join us for refreshments in the fellowship hall. That's ours. Every single Sunday. Every Sunday. We have cookies and punch and milk and stuff, you know. Oh no. What's up? Because they're going to town right now. Can you say that? Yeah. yeah. See, that's not my phone. It's in the couch. It's in the couch. It's inside the couch. This couch, the couch you're sitting on. <laughs> oh, wow. Ta-da! <laughs> okay, let's pray and then we'll jump into God's Word since we have a little less time than we usually do. Abba, Father, we thank you for your beautiful Word and we pray, Lord, that you would just fill this room with your glorious presence. Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts for whatever it is that you want to do or say today. Lord, I just thank you again for how generous you are. You are, you're unbelievably generous. And Lord, every time you show up, you're always giving. You love to receive our worship and our praise. You love to hear our prayers, but you love to give. And every time you come into our midst, you are, you, you give and give and give. You pour out and pour out and pour out. And I am so grateful for this reality of who you are. And Lord, I just confess this morning, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I spent all of last week uh, uh, chewing on James, or sorry, not James, First uh, John chapter 1. Well, really, like all the way through chapter 4 uh, last week. That was my... That was what I was bathing in last week. Uh, not a bad thing to be bathing in. I'm t- we're teaching a sermon series called Come to the Table um, right now at Fremont Community. And, uh, and that sermon series is about our connection to one another. And there is no book of the Bible that says more about loving each other than First John. It is the theme of the book. But it starts out, John starts the letter by saying this really cryptic, weird thing that I, that I really had to soak in 
for a while to begin to get it, to begin to really understand it. And he says, what he says is, here's the truth that I've come to proclaim, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Which is fine, that's fine. We're, we're okay, yes. But then he goes on and the rest of the book is about loving one another. So the message is God is light and in him there is no darkness. Because of that, we should we have fellowship with each other. And I've been digging into this phrase. It turns out nobody really knows what he meant when he said God is light and in him there is no darkness. There's 12 different ways to interpret it. It's, an, it's a metaphor, okay? And, and, but just about everybody who's saying, we think it probably means that God's really holy and there's no sin in him at all. But it, that makes no sense at all with what the rest of the stuff that he says in the letter. Because the very next thing he says is, and if you have darkness in you, you do not have fellowship with God. Okay, that's sentence number two. Okay, sentence number, but, which, which fits with the sin and the, you know, right? That, that fits with that whole narrative. But go one more sentence and he says, but if you are in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Wait for it. And the blood of Jesus is cleansing away your sin. Okay, now hold on, Johnny. Because sentence four is, and if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So, whoa. Okay, sentence two says, if there's darkness in you, you're not in fellowship with God. Sentence three says, if you're in the light, you have fellowship with God and Jesus' blood is cleansing you from sin. And sentence four says, if you say you have no sin, you're lying. Okay, so... That means that sentence two cannot mean, darkness cannot equal sin in that sentence. Because he says, if you have darkness in you, you do not have fellowship with God. So, sentence two cannot be, cannot be translated as, if you have sin in you, you cannot be in fellowship with God. We can't use, nope, that's not what that means. Are you with me right now? Is everybody because you look a little confused? What, what does the word darkness translate in the Greek? That's a great question. It translates as darkness. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> great. There's no, it's not better than that. It's just <laughs> darkness. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but John didn't say that and he didn't say it in this context. I know, but that's just what comes to my mind. Sure. It's like, you're the darkness that. So we have to assume that because darkness cannot be translated as sin, that light cannot be translated as holiness. You with me? Yes. So what is light in this? Well, the, the, what it seems to be is love and connection. It seems to be, now I want you to think about it for a minute. Because light, what does light do? Light reveals, light unveils, light drives back the darkness. Light makes it possible for me to see your face and for you to see mine. Okay? 
So could it be translated? And I'm not saying it should be, but I want you to think about it for just a second. In God, God is openness, connection, and love, and in him there is no hiddenness at all. The original sentence, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Could it mean something along the lines of God is love and connectedness and in him there is no disconnection at all? Or hiddenness at all? When you think of darkness, what do you think of? I'm hiding. I can't be seen. I'm, I am... I am... Not revealed. So what I think John was saying was that God is all revelation. That God is all openness. That God is all, here I am, this is what I look like. I want to know you. I'm inviting you to know me. That that's God. God is all, I'm inviting you to know me. That everything about him is, I'm inviting you to know me. Come know me. Know me. Know me. Okay? He is the naked God. Okay? Has anybody in here heard my story about that? I think probably a lot of you have. Okay. I've told the story a bunch of times, but. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Maybe not this year. I heard it last year. I'm pretty sure you heard it this year. I heard it this year. I was at the house of prayer. We were praying. I got knocked out on the thing. And all of a sudden, I heard my. I, and, and because I saw Jesus opening his robe to show me his heart. And, I, and then I'm, I realized that I was on the ground and I was yelling at the top of my lungs, he is the naked God! Okay, so, that's the story. It's in quick, yeah. So, but this, this, that's what I think John was saying. This idea that Jesus, that God is, he, he wants us to know him, that it is, it's his deep desire that we be in fellowship with him and with each other. And that any part of you, that if, if, if you're holding yourself back from fellowship with God at, in any way, then you are he- holding yourself back completely from fellowship with God. And not just from fellowship with God, but let's take it one step further. If you're holding your back from fe- yourself back from fellowship with others who are in fellowship with God, then you are holding yourself back from God. Now, that idea then unfolds through the rest of the book of John. But that statement does not make sense. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That statement only makes sense if you interpret it that way. Otherwise, it's just like this statement that he throws out there, and now let's move on and talk about loving one another. It's like this whole other... But if, if you begin to, to... If you take that metaphor and you translate it like that and say, this is what I think that metaphor means, then the rest of the book just opens up. And it becomes all about, the rest of the book becomes all about being in fellowship, in relationship, in openness and vulnerability to one another. And how, when we are in that place, we are open and in fellowship and vulnerable to the Lord. And that those two things cannot be separated from one another. Here's this cool scientific reality. Are you ready? Do you know that electrons behave differently when they are observed than they do when they are not? Okay, this is the truth of quantum mechanics. But how can you tell the accuracy? 
they can see where they were. Ever, anyone ever heard of Schrodinger's cat? Yes. yes. Superposition. Okay. Where the cat is both alive and dead. Right. So, quantum mechanics says that on the tiniest, tiniest level of the universe, things operate differently than they do on the largest. And that the tiniest particles in existence are affected by things that don't affect the largest things. For instance, uh, electrons behave differently when they are when they are observed than they do when they're not observed. And sometimes they will exist when they're observed and they will not exist at all when they're not. Yes. This is the truth. You can go look it up, Google it. That if you go looking for an electron there, you will find it. If you didn't go looking for it, it would not be there at all. It does not exist. Okay, I know it's mind-bending. But I want you to think of that. If you scale, so, so start scaling that up. What does it mean? <coughs> maybe that, maybe that this, is, this is indicative of all existence. It's a good word. It's a great word. Maybe this is indicative of all existence that, listen, To be observed is to exist. <laughs> that the more that the more there are people near you, the more people, the more human beings that are that are observing, that are involved with, that are connected to your life, the more real you are. Solipsism. Have you heard solipsism, where things only exist if you perceive them? Well, that's that's kind of what I'm talking I know, about. It's an interesting thought pattern. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that if no one's ever seen anything, it doesn't exist. Okay. But what I am saying is that that it that there is something happening on the smallest level of your existence that your connection to other consciousnesses. It affects your consciousness. You are different because you have people around you. You are different because, because you are open and, and people are allowed to see who you are. It makes you better. And now I want to ask you, what, are the first, what is the first and second greatest commandments according to Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, and strength. And? Now, this has nothing to do with the Sermon on the Mount. I don't even know why we're here, except that it's on my mind. Okay? What if? Here's, my, here's, my, here's what I'm beginning to glimpse. Here's what I'm beginning to understand. That our eternal trajectory is into God and each other. Okay? Our lives are moving in a specific direction. If you are a follower of Jesus, your eternal trajectory is toward God and toward one another. 
That's our eternal trajectory. Into God and each other. That's, that's it. We are moving. Why? Because Jesus said, here are your two signposts. Love God, love each other. And as we move along those two lines, we're moving toward God and toward each other infinitely. Does this make sense? Okay. So what's the opposite of that? Away from God and away from each other. What is hell? And if being and if moving towards, if if moving into more and more of yourself being observed is moving more and more into actual existence or being, that if being itself is. It, it is somehow connected to our connection to each other, then as you moved away from each other and away from God, what are you moving into? Non-being. You are beginning to cease to exist. Does this make sense? And that that is the reality of hell, that we are moving out of God and one another. Anyway, that's, those were your deep thoughts with Pastor Josh today. <laughs> just let that, just let that, just, just let that sit on you for a few days, okay? I, I think it's fascinating. Now, we're going to very much talk about that, okay? Because we're going to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, which says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I find it fascinating that you talked about deliverance today. Because whenever you talk about deliverance, repentance is one piece, forgiveness is the other. Okay? Repentance is one is one is the right hand, forgiveness is the left hand of, of deliverance. And we're talking about mercy. Okay. Definitions of mercy. One. Well, somebody give me your definition of mercy. What is mercy? Not giving something they deserve. Or not giving someone something they deserve. Correct. You deserve punishment and you do not receive it. That's mercy. Okay. I deserve to be punished. I don't receive it. I don't receive punishment. Mercy was shown to me. Thank you. I didn't want it. <laughs> I'm supposed to pay this debt. I now no longer have to pay it. Mercy. And what's the difference between mercy and grace? Grace is giving someone something that they don't deserve. Correct. Doing great today. <laughs> mercy takes you to zero. You owe no one anything. They owe no you any. They owe you nothing. Okay. Mercy takes you to zero. You no longer owe anyone anything. No one owes you anything. Grace takes you into the positive. You've been given something you did not deserve. Okay? But today we're just going to get to mercy. Mercy. Blessed are the merciful. The life of God is in the merciful. Why? For they themselves shall receive mercy. They shall receive mercy. Here's another, but there is another. Definite, biblical definition of mercy, and that is compassion. 
to have compassion on a hurting individual is also called mercy in the Bible. It's the same Greek word, mercy and compassion. The Hebrew word is often translated loving kindness. The Hebrew word we translate as mercy is often translated into loving kindness. You find that a lot in the Psalms. You heard the, the psalm, his mercy endures forever, or his mercy is new every morning. Okay, You could also translate that his loving kindness endures forever, his loving kindness is new every morning. I kind of like loving kindness better than mercy myself, but anyway. Okay, so Jesus talks about the first, this idea of someone deserves something and they do not receive it. He, he talks about that uh, quite a bit in his ministry, okay? Uh, we hear it in the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts when? As we forgive those who have, you know, as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. My family, we, uh, we, me and Rachel and the kids, when we sit down to dinner, we usually pray for the food and then we pray the Lord's Prayer because I want my kids grounded in the Lord's Prayer. So we pray the Lord's Prayer together. We, that's the version. That's, 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 the, uh, that's the translation we use. Is forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I don't know why. We just ended on that. It landed on that. Okay, Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. Okay, this is when I, when I start, when I talk about it being the left hand of deliverance, this is what I'm talking about. Because deliverance is impossible without mercy coming from you. Coming from you. And you might say, why do I have to forgive them so that I can be delivered? Be and, well, well, we're moving there, okay? Because, because Jesus said, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. You see, mercy is a state of being. It is not necessarily an, uh, a, 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 an action. It's a state of being. I'm moving too fast, though. We hear it in the parables of Jesus. Think about the splinter in the eye. Okay? When you go to remove the splinter from someone else's eye, look and see you have a log <laughs> sticking out of your own eye, right? Take that log out first before you try and take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Okay? That's, a, that's mercy again. Also, the servant who was forgiven his great debt. Do you know this? Do you, do you, do you know that parable? Yes. That parable is one of the most important parables. When you're talking about deliverance ministry especially, you need to know this parable. Because Jesus is talking specifically about being free. He's saying the only way to be free is to be a forgiving person. It's the only way. The only way to... to Cancel the enemy's debt, the enemy's ability to come in and mess with you is to release whoever else has, you, you know, owes you something. Can you, like, reword that? Because I'm going to write that down. That's good. I'm sorry. <laughs> the only way to receive mercy is to give mercy. The only way to be forgiven is to forgive. When you revoke the enemy's the only way to revoke the enemy's permission to mess with you is by revoking your rights in, in someone else's life. You see, demons love, they smell unforgiveness. They love it. They love it. 
and they'll come find it. And they'll come crawl inside of it and make their home. It's the way that they do. They love it. And when you're carrying around unforgiveness, you are creating a beautiful place for demonic presence to thrive. When you're carrying unforgiveness? Yes. And what would you describe as like unforgiveness? Because this is such like a weird, I'm sorry. No, please. Because like, you know, I was always taught to forgive, but I never was taught what forgiveness truly is. Like, what does it, what does it look like? Because I was like studying Matthew 18, 21 the other day. And you know, he's like, Jesus, how many times do I forgive? Um, you know, this guy who like hurt me. And I was thinking, maybe he's not talking about a guy who hurts him like 20 times a day. Maybe he's talking about the guy who did one offense to him and it offends him over and over again because he thinks about it over and over again. And so like, maybe like, like I always think that sometimes forgiveness comes in pieces and it doesn't come the whole as always. But you It know, definitely comes in pieces. It definitely comes in pieces. And Jesus was actually talking about both. Yeah. Both the guy who's hurt me 20 times and the guy who hurt me once that I just can't get over it. Yeah. He was talking about both. Forgive them till they're forgiven. That was Jesus' point. Forgive them till they're forgiven. That was his point. Okay? And, and, here's, and, and Jesus was specifically referencing an Old Testament person. Okay? Very early in Genesis. Okay? Was the seventh son, I think, of Esau, or not Esau, uh, uh, Cain, a descendant of Cain. I can't remember his name. I'm not going to go look it up right now. It's a descendant of Cain. I want to say his name is Lamech, but I'm not sure about that. Okay, his 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 he's a descendant of Cain. Okay, and he says to everyone, if. God said if you hurt Cain, that you'd be repaid seven times. So I'm telling you, if you hurt me, you're going to be repaid 70 times seven. He ramped up revenge. Complete, like way beyond even where it was put with Cain. Okay. Remember God sent Cain out and put a mark on him and said, if anyone hurts Cain, you know, and he actually said they'll be repaid sevenfold. God was protecting Cain. What a beautiful picture that is. Cain kills his brother. God says, I'm going to protect you. Wow. Anybody kills Cain, it's sevenfold punishment on their head. That's what God said over Cain. So Cain's grandson or great-grandson, somebody down the line from Cain says, if that was true about Cain, it's 70 times truer for me. If you try and hurt me, I'm going to come back at you 70 times 7. So essentially he was talking about like, he wasn't talking about Jesus was pointing back at that, which Peter would have known full well, this, this story. Jesus was pointing back at that and saying, I'm going to take the opposite stance from Lamech, or whatever this guy's name was. Is that, I don't think so. You can go look it up if you want to. It's in Genesis. It's, one, it's like maybe chapter 5, chapter 4, chapter 5. Jesus is saying that that is the operation of the kingdom of this world. This is the operation of the kingdom of heaven. It's the opposite. Whereas you would hold me 
490 times retribution, I would say to you 490 times forgiveness. Does that make sense? Now that's so weird how he was like referring to like the Old Testament and like talking about how God said that he was going to get vengeance. And he was like, all oh, means that I'm going to get vengeance. No, the Lord was talking about getting, he's the one who takes, like vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Right. So yeah. That's, that's so weird. So like what does like, what does forgiveness like look like? Sorry if I keep asking. No, it's questions. okay. It's, it's the best, like, my working mm-hmm. definition of forgiveness <laughs> is one of the hardest sentences on the planet. You pay for what they did. But isn't that what Jesus did for us? I mean, think about it. Jesus looked at our sin, which was committed against him. I think of Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned, God. We committed our sin directly against him, and Jesus is saying, I pay for what you did. It's like having somebody hit my car with their car. Okay, it's their fault. They hit me. But not only am I going to pay for my car to be repaired, but I'm going to pay for their car to be repaired. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness extends beyond just what happened to you and extends into the hurt and the brokenness that they that they were acting out of and when they hurt you. And that kind of forgiveness is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's only possible because we stand under the cleansing flow of the blood of Jesus. It's only possible because we can take what they did and put it on Jesus' cross. And say, everything I ever did has been forgiven and paid for. So everything you ever did is also paid for. The cross doesn't just forgive what, ha- what you did. The cross also forgives what others did to you. The cross doesn't just forgive what you did. The cross also forgives what others have done to you. That's why Jesus said things like, if you forgive someone else their sins, then they are forgiven. If you do not, then they are not. But what Jesus didn't say in that place was if you don't forgive them their sins, you're not forgiven from your sins either. He says that in several other places. He just didn't say it right there. He says it in Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debt, who owe us. Like somebody hurt me like really bad like last year and like I won't go into detail but like um and then like I went to like counseling yeah like for a while like with uh, my pastor's wife and like so she just kind of slapped it like a thing on it that said forgive them and then just left it at that yeah and so like that really hurt and I think that some Christians have this idea that forgiveness is a band aid for the pain that you feel 
and no. re- regardless of like trying to process it. And so like I just want like how like is it biblical? Like I just like you know like I know that it is to like still hurt, yeah. but to also be forgive for- forgiving because I know that like for me my walking through forgiveness I am. Like, it's not, like, I don't want revenge anymore, like, I, like, you know, but it's just, it's hard because a lot of people just use it as a band-aid yeah. for a bullet hole. <coughs> right. So, yeah. you know, like, do you yeah. know what I mean? I know completely what you mean. Forgiveness is a decision. It is a choice, but it is also a process. And the process begins with a choice. That's the, the choice is at the beginning, and then every day after that. You say today, I forgive you. You owe me nothing. I actually use that phrase. Uh, not when I'm face-to-face with someone. <laughs> but, but, but in my own heart, like if, if feelings of hurt and betrayal rise up in me again after I've already forgiven them, then I will say it out loud for two reasons. One, it's good for me. And two, the enemy needs to hear it. He can't hear my thoughts. So I'm going to step out. I'm going to say, I forgive them. They owe me nothing. I let them go. And I respond to my pain with grace. And what, that, what happens in that moment is that the, the Holy Spirit is released to heal my wound. I'm speaking in faith with what Jesus did on the cross and what the Holy Spirit is doing within me. I forgive them in Jesus' name. Forgive them. I take whatever anyone has done to me and I put it on the cross with Jesus and it's going to die with Jesus and I'm coming out of the grave without it. We can live by grace or we can live by law, but we have to choose. You don't get to straddle grace and law. It doesn't work. Either you live as a forgiven, forgiving person, or you live as a you owe me this, I owe you that person. You can't be one or the other. We love, (laughs) we can't exist in the place of what someone deserves in one area of our life and still expect to not receive what we deserve in that area of our lives. Okay, I'm gonna, let's go back to the cert to the servant who was forgiven his great debt. The story goes like this. There was a servant who owed a a massive amount of money. Let's just call it a million dollars because that's kind of where, that's about the level of debt that he had. He owed the king a million dollars. The king's, you know, accountant lets him know, hey, Josh owes you a million dollars. He hasn't paid anything on it. So the king says, I'm settling my accounts today. Josh, get in here. And I come in, and I look at the king, and he says, you owe me a million dollars, and he is correct. I do. But I have no way of paying him back. Just none. I don't have the money. 
So I get down on my hands and knees weeping and I ask for forgiveness of the debt. Please just, just give me, just give me a little more time. I'm, I'm trying. I'm doing everything I can to pay you back, but I just don't have the money right now. Can you please, please just wait. Just give me a little more time. Just asking for a little mercy. And the king's heart is moved. So he says, I forgive you the debt. Not only, I'm, I, not, not I'm giving you a little bit of time to pay me back. No, I'm forgiving the debt. You owe me nothing. Now, what happened? Does that million dollars just disappear? In my world, it does. That grace, that, that, that mercy that came to me, that cost me nothing. Right? But the king is a million dollars poorer than he was. It cost him. It didn't cost me. What did he do? He paid for what I did. That's what he did. Okay? But the story goes on. And the servant gets up. He's got a new lease on life. He is excited. What a great day. I no longer owe anything. My student loans are gone. Praise Jesus. And he walks out of the king's palace. I've got the world on a string. Right? And he's walking out. And then he runs into Preston. And you know what? We were at Starbucks the other day. And Preston's like, I'm a little short. Can you, you know? You got that little Starbucks card, you know, just boop, you know, <laughs> right? And he bought a $5 mocha. <laughs> he bought a $5 mocha. He put an extra shot in it. He owes me $5. Hey, Preston, I need my $5. And you know what he says? I love it. In Jesus' story, he uses the exact same language that Josh just used before the king. Just give me time. I'm working on it. I can't do it today. I will pay you back, I promise. The exact same language. But Josh doesn't react the way the king did. Josh says, Josh says, no, you're going to give me my money now or I'm going to throw you in prison and that's the way it's going to be. Your wife and your kids are going to prison. I'm, re I'm re you know, possessing your house burning you to the ground. I want my five dollars. <laughs> okay? The king hears about this. You know, he walked outside and then like ripped a guy to shreds because he owed him five dollars and the king's like, excuse me? The king calls Josh back into the house. And I'm sure Josh coming <coughs> into the house is feeling pretty good. Maybe the king's going to give me a million dollars this time. Woohoo! The king says, hey, what's this deal with the $5? And he's like, well, you know, he owes me the $5. I mean, it's like, yeah, but you owed me a million dollars and I let you go. You walk out the door and you're going to prosecute him for five? Yeah. He's like, Guess what? Oh, your debt's back. <laughs> and I'm sending you to jail. In fact, the Bible says I'm sending you to the torturers. And you will not leave prison until you have paid me back every cent. What, what is going on? <laughs> I, I never understood debtor's prison, honestly. because But it's been a thing all throughout history of putting people who owe in prison. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But uh, anyway. It's, okay. Now let me ask you. And, and Jesus says, So, 
If you forgive other people when they've sinned against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Here's the deal, folks. What this parable is saying is that if you're unforgiving, you're stuck in prison and you're stuck being tortured. You are in torture. There's an old saying that goes, to hold a grudge against someone else is like taking poison yourself and expecting them to die. But you have the key to that prison. The key to that prison is forgiveness. And the minute that you exercise that key and say, never mind, Preston doesn't owe me anything. The prison doors will open wide and your debt's forgiven. That's why repentance and forgiveness are the right and left hands of deliverance because deliverance can only come, mercy can only be released into your life when you are being a merciful person. There is a place where you can live called mercy and there's another place you can live called law and you cannot live, but you cannot live in both places. Go ahead. Yeah. If it were not for love, I would have never ever came back. Keep forgiving. You can't unsee what you've seen. Let the pain go. Decrease. Hate is a prison. You may not get your apology, and on the day that you do, it may not mean a thing. Yeah. Keep forgiving. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah. you're just like, sort of like, you know, like, that just reminded me. Like, you sound like a lot like, like what he says on forgiveness. Well, we both sound like Jesus. Yeah. yeah <laughs> because this is what Jesus was teaching us. It's true. Like that, the person that you forgive isn't always going to be like, "No, oh, I repent and I turn around and I no. love Jesus now." And I think that was the hardest thing for me. Sorry, I can just like talk. No, a go. Bit. Like that's like the hardest thing is to like see that you've forgiven somebody, and the best thing that you would want out of forgiving somebody is like, "Oh, if I forgive them, they're going to know Jesus and they're going to turn back around." No, that's like that's not reality. That doesn't really happen very often. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but. I tell you what, right now, that the best witness you could ever give to someone who doesn't know Jesus is to forgive them. Yeah. One of the prayers that uh, I pray for people is, Lord, give them the grace I would ask for myself. Lord, give them the grace that I would ask if it was me. I forgive them, I let them go. Forgive them, give them the grace that I would ask for if it was me. Give them the grace I am asking for because I need it. If you would receive mercy, then you have to give mercy. James chapter 2, 10 through 13. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We are the people of mercy. My favorite phrase right now is, if you cut me, I bleed mercy. Okay? You wounding me is release, will release forgiveness out of my life to you. Not, not revenge. It's not the payback. And Jesus stands, Jesus stands as the final innocent victim. You see, there's this thing that human civilization does. We do it all the time. All the time. Where our insecurities, our brokennesses, the things that we hate about ourselves, we all get together and we take all of those things, our hurt, our pain, our brokenness, and we put it on a scapegoat. And as a group, we decide together to hate that person. To hate that thing. As a group, we get together and we say, there's our problem. We're not our problem. There's our problem. And we go and we take that innocent victim and we slaughter them. And we all feel better for it. Which is exactly what we did to Jesus. It's exactly what we did to Jesus. But here's the deal. You see, the first time this ever happened in human society was when Cain who felt guilty about off giving God an offering without faith, saw his brother over there rejoicing in the favor of God, and he got insecure and broken about himself and how he hadn't done it right. So what does he do? He picks up a rock and he clogs his brother over the head and kills him. Done. Right? What does the Bible say? God confronts Cain. What does the Bible say? The Bible says... Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground, Cain. I know what you did. You reacted in your own insecurity and fear and shame and guilt. You killed him to try and feel better. He was the first innocent victim, he wasn't the last. He was the first human being to die as a scapegoat. But that continues on to this day. We see it every day. We see it in our politics. We see it in our war. We see it in our racism. We see it in our culture wars where we pick out somebody we call them the reason we're really having problems and we crucify them but the Bible says something beautiful about Jesus the Bible says yeah he was an innocent victim and his blood also cries out from the ground but his blood <coughs> speaks a better word than that of the blood of Abel the blood of Jesus cries out Forgive them, for they know not what they do. For the first time, a victim chooses not to ask for revenge, but to ask for forgiveness. That when we cut Jesus, he bled grace. 
When we cut Jesus, he bled mercy. When we attacked Jesus, he said, I will take your violence, I will take your hatred, I will take your blame, and I will kill it all, and I will only give back to you love and acceptance and mercy and grace. That's what he said. That's what happened on the cross. He stood before all of creation and said, I will take it. Humanity, I will take all of your, I will be, I want to be the last, the final, the ultimate innocent victim. Let there never be another one again. I will be the final, ultimate innocent victim. And in me, your violence, your hatred, your anger, your insecurity, your brokenness is killed. And in my resurrection, I am giving life back to you and to every other innocent victim that has ever died. Do you see the glory of the cross? And do you see how we cannot be a people who stand in accusation? How we cannot be a people who are, who are anything but peacemakers, who are anything but mercy givers? We need to be walking mercy. St. Francis of Assisi was spoken of. It said that he walked the world as the pardon of God. That I'm a living message to you that God does not deal with you according to your sins. He loves you and he wants you. The problem is that so many times and in so many ways, the church has decided that that's not who they're going to be. So many times and in so many ways, the church has decided that we're going to be the accusers of the earth and not the forgivers of the earth. But that's not our place because we should be accused, but we're forgiven. Therefore, we cannot be the accusers of the earth anymore. We need to be the forgivers of the earth. We need to be living mercy. We need to be, we need to be the carriers of grace. We need to, everything we touch gets made holy. There's this beautiful picture in the Old Testament, the, the, the altar of God. Okay, the altar of God has horns on it, has these protrusions from the altar come out on all four sides of the altar. And this is the place where uh, the sacrifices are burnt before the Lord. Okay? But there was this thing, there was this understanding that anything, the, this is so cool, because the Bible says, if anything touches the altar, what's the end of that sentence? Somebody tell me. Anything touches the altar, what happens next? Somebody tell me. Just make a guess. That's what you would think, right? If you touch the Ark of the Covenant, death. But if you touch the altar, this is the altar. It's different. That thing is now holy because it touched the altar. There literally are 
moments in Israel's history where murderers have run into the, the holy place and grabbed hold of the horns of the altar saying, you can't kill me now. I've been made holy because I touched it. This is who we are. Do you understand that you are the altar? Do you understand that you are? And anything that touches you gets to be made holy? We are, what does the Bible say? God has given us the ministry of what? Come on now. Somebody wow me with your biblical knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> come on what is it the ministry of what God's given us the ministry of what you guys are failing your tests today I did not that was not a prophetic word okay 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 Okay, we're going to start with, let's see, we'll start with verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are trying, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, blah, blah, blah. If, we, if we're out of our mind, as some say it is for God, I'm, I'm, I should have started. Okay, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We carry the ministry of reconciliation. This is who you are. You are the reconcilers. Does anybody know what reconciliation is? Somebody give me a good definition of that word. Part of it. Restoration, that's part of it. Okay, if I'm angry at my brother Caleb because of something that happened between us, but then we decide we're not going to be angry with each other and we're restoring our relationship with each other, that's called reconciliation. Means there was a relationship, it, but it was broken, and now that relationship is being restored, reconciliation. That's what it's called. When a broken relationship is restored, it's called reconciliation. Okay? So what's your job? That's right. Your job is to get out there in the world and reconcile the world to God. Fix their broken relationship with him. 
Jesus did what it was necessary for that relationship to be fixed. Now your job is to get out there and fix it. Your job is to go find the lost sons and daughters of God and to reconnect them with their father. To reconcile them. To name the brokenness of this relationship and to bring them back into relationship with God. That's your job. That's who you are. But not just people. You're also called to reconcile the systems of this world to God. You're also called to reconcile the physical earth, the tangible existence and universe. The whole world has been has been broken out of relationship with God because of the sin of man. Jesus took care of the sin, but the world is not yet reconciled to him, and it is our job now to get out there and make all things new. I'm going to read it to you again. Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If you are in Christ, your life is no longer about you. Your life is about him. So from now on, I don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view, the once I even looked at Jesus that way, not anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. You hear that phrase? The new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Now what you don't understand about that necessarily is that the Apostle Paul is standing at the apex of 3,000 years of Jewish history before him. And even a few thousand years before that, all the way back to Adam and Eve, where Adam, Adam and Eve wrecked creation, and God came in and said, I will recreate everything. Everything you messed up, I'm going to bring back. I'm going to recreate it. So thousands of years of prophetic history lead up to this point, and here's the Apostle Paul saying, New creation isn't in the future. New creation is now. New creation exists. New creation is happening right now in this moment at this time. And you are already a part of new creation. If you're in Christ, new creation has come. Jesus didn't just die and then get resuscitated. Jesus walked through death to the other side and became the firstborn of a new creation. Are you all with me right now? Because what I'm preaching to you is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most revolutionary message in the history of the world, that God is recreating the entire universe without death. And you are the first fruits of that recreation. Resurrection power began in you 2,000 years ago and it is now moving through you and out of you so that you can reconcile heaven to earth man to God creation to recreation and it looks like this mercy 
forgiveness. The ministry of reconciliation is found here in this place. It's found in mercy. It's found in forgiveness. It's found in God not holding our sins against us anymore. This is where the kingdom lives. So should we as the, I cannot stand the Facebook rants from Christians, I want to call them so-called Christians, that are pointing at the world and just all they all I hear is the voice of the accuser. That's all I hear. You're evil, you're bad, you're running away from God, you're going to hell. How is that the gospel? Is anything you just said good news? No, it's old news. Everybody knows it already. There's nobody confused about whether or not they're okay. There's nobody confused about whether or not they're perfect. I don't know anybody in the world that honestly, truthfully, believes they're perfect. Biting my tongue right now. I was just thinking, except for maybe the president. But no one else honestly believes that they're perfect. I'm kidding, kind of. Oh, why did I say it? I shouldn't have said it. I need to delete it now. Okay. Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry. I don't want to be the accuser. Lord, give him the grace that I would ask for myself. <laughs> okay. The world doesn't need another person telling them how bad they are. The world just doesn't need that. What the world needs is someone who carries reconciliation around inside of them. What the world needs is someone who is offering them an invitation to be better to heal, to be forgiven, to change. The world needs is people that are walking around as the pardon of God. What the world needs is the world needs a people who are walking around saying, come home. Your father's not rejecting you, come home. Your separation is no longer necessary, come home. That's what the world needs. The world doesn't need an accusing finger pointed at it. It's never helped anyone in the history of the world. It's never helped anyone. The world needs is an offer of reconciliation. That's what they need. We'll let the Holy Spirit teach them how to live like Jesus. Well, I mean, Jesus told us to do that too. But not until after they've been reconciled to God. Once they're reconnected with the Father, then we can talk to them about what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. That's the order. What did Jesus say? Go into all the world, preach the gospel to everyone. What's next? Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. 
That's number two, not number one. Besides, the church needs to act like Jesus before we start trying to tell everybody else to act like Jesus. <clears throat> Amen. Amen. Yeah. Any questions, queries? Y'all okay? Mm -hmm. I want to just end with this. Three verses. Something we need to understand. That God loves mercy. We got to get this. Because I think most of us approach God in fear and trembling, thinking he would really rather hurt us than forgive us. But he just kind of decides, well, all right, I'll be merciful this time. But you better not screw up again. That's how we see God. At least that's how I, that's, that's my default setting on how I feel God actually is. I have to be. I have to have the breath of the Holy Spirit to not think of God that way. Is there anybody else that you're in my camp that you just kind of think God's mostly annoyed with you most of the time, and that when you mess up, He's like, "Again? Are you kidding me? How many times do I have to die for you?" <laughs> That's literally how I feel sometimes. But here you go. Micah 7.18, you delight in showing mercy. What? Speaking of God, you delight in showing mercy. That means God enjoys forgiving you. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever thought that Jesus is like, I get to forgive you. Woo! That's what it says. You delight in showing mercy. What? 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 That's a shocking, shocking reality. Are you singing that Matt Gilman song? You delight in showing me mercy. I don't know what's. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I like that song you were singing a lot better. Not me. I like that one better. Maybe it's just the nostalgia part of the first one. Still. There is some nostalgia, isn't there? For me, at least. That was 2001. Yeah. Is that? I love early 2000s worship. Everything that. Everything that. I don't know. Everything that. Do you guys remember? Oh my gosh. Easy, easy. All right. Hosea 6 6. Hosea 6 6. For I desire mercy. He delights in mercy. He also desires mercy. Hosea 6.6. 6, I desire mercy. Whoa. That's mind-blowing. And then James 2.13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God would rather be merciful he will take any opportunity we give him to forgive. Father, we thank you. We love you. We, I love this message. I love this truth. I love this reality that this is who you are. 
You delight in showing mercy. You desire mercy. This is who you are, Father. You are merciful. You are kind. You have new loving kindness for us every morning. Jesus, would you rewrite the DNA of our brains and our emotions and our hearts that would tell us that you are the accuser. You are not the accuser. You stand against the accuser. You are the forgiver. Your blood speaks a better word than that of Abel. You are crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is who you are. And because it's who you are, Jesus, it's also who our Father is. And it's who the Holy Spirit is. You are the one who, you, you, you are living mercy. You are, you are <laughs> grace incarnate. This is who you are. And Lord, I thank you for it. And Lord, I pray we would see it and cherish it. And I pray that the reality of who you are, of the things that you love, you love to forgive. Lord, I, that, I pray that the things that you love would become the things that we love. I pray that the things that you desire would become the things that we desire. I pray, Lord, that deep down inside of us, we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we would be just like you, that we would be forgivers of the world and not accusers of the world, that we would be those who bleed mercy and grace Lord, let us leave this place and walk the world as the pardon of God. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.